This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 189 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. We've got a special guest this week. That's Bryce. I should have asked how to say his last name, Bladen. You did it right. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? For sure. Uh, my name is Bryce Bladen. I'm a writer and creative communications consultant, and most people know me for a website I run called uh, clientsfromhell.net. Now, none of us have had clients from hell, so you're, you're just going to have to run the whole show. Oh, yeah? Never once. Oh, you lucky, lucky people. <laughs> and I know none of our listeners have had clients from hell either. Oh, no, I'm I'm not even sure there are bad clients out there. Oh, no, not at all. Mm. So so how did you how did you get around to starting a, a site called Clients from Hell? Well, the truth of the matter is I didn't actually start it. I just started running it uh, some time ago. A friend of mine who, uh, I should say a colleague, worked as a designer at an agency over in Victoria, B.C., started it with his brothers and uh, really blew up from there to the point where they simply didn't have time to uh, keep running it. So I got on there in the like first year of its inception and the uh, site's gone through a few hands, a few different people running it, but now it's uh, safely in mine. Cool. So the yeah. idea is is that you've got these uh, stories basically from clients from hell. Yes, absolutely. It's um, basically uh, twice a day uh, we publish a story somebody anonymously submitted about a 
crappy client experience they had, ranging from like, oh, what a comical misunderstanding to that is racist. That is just straight up racist. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is, so the site's been around since I want to say 2008. And we haven't missed a day of updates. Like, that's how many (laughs) submissions we get on such a regular basis. I have somebody helping me with them now. But up until about four months ago, I was doing that all on my own. And uh, my God, my God, do people have a lot of crappy clients out there. I was being facetious (laughs) earlier in the show, if you couldn't tell. it's, It's bad out there. It's bad out there. Oh, man. Yeah, I know I've had a few, but I'm, I'm really curious. Like, what is the what is your favorite story? My favorite story. OK, so I, I have two. One is just a, one of those comical misunderstandings from before. And this was somebody had a new German client. And as they were closing off their like introductory email to this person, this long winded, uh, I shouldn't say long winded, long email. Um, they sent the whole thing. I just included the last part for this story. But they ended the story with uh, fill me in further, and then they signed their name. Unfortunately, what that got changed to was mein Fuhrer, and then they signed their name uh, oh. with this brand new German client. So really, the client wasn't the one from hell there, <laughs> and it, it all worked out in the end. But that was probably one of the best just like, oh, that that could have gone better in almost any way you, uh, you split it. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. Yeah. The other one, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to break the anonymity rule. This one's one of mine. And this is one of the few crappy clients I ever had. And it was so way back when I used to live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I was thinking of moving to Vancouver, BC, which for the uninitiated is about a thousand to fourteen hundred kilometers. That's like seven hundred miles, I think ish. Sorry, Imperial Systems weird guys. But uh, anyways, I was working in film at the time and they wanted me on set for some stuff. And I was like, great, I will make the trip out. It's a 14-hour drive, but I did it. And then um, showed up at the set, and nobody was there. There was no set. I was like, what's going on? And he was just like, oh, sorry, it got moved to tomorrow. Uh, can you still do it? And I was like, all right. Um, so I stayed at a friend's place, and then uh, I went to the address they had given me before. And I'm sitting there, and nobody's shown up yet. And so I got in touch with a friend of a friend who was also working on this thing. And apparently the times had changed, too. And so I like I'm, I've been trying to call the producer this entire time, by the way, I'm sitting here for about an hour and I'm sitting on the side of a street in my car and I get rear-ended. And oh, gosh, yeah. So I'm just like, oh, thing on top of thing. Like I'm I'm 1400 kilometers from home. You know, I've I've wasted at least 36 hours so far and I've just I'm tired. I'm confused. I'm annoyed. And the car starts to drive off. And I swear to God, it was my client. <laughs> Like, no joke, the, like, start time for the shoot had been moved up four hours. So while I was early, like, in the process of waiting, he had shown up early, rear-ended me, and then tried to leave. Um, <laughs> and, and like, the, the cherry on top of this was he had replaced me the night before and just didn't tell me. Oh, uh, I guess he didn't expect me to show up. Um, so that was just, like, that wasn't great. That was not a, not a fun experience. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, my minor complaints seem pretty minor <laughs> compared to some of that. Yeah. In my, I, I was going to say in my client's defense, no, no defense for him. But uh, I do have the good fortune of uh, not having a lot of crappy clients. That's that's one of my few, like, just how could you do this stories? <laughs> like, how could you be that bad? Yeah, it's no, uh, It's truly astounding. Yeah, I can't top that. Not even close. <laughs> I'm sure you could try. I'm, I'm, I hardly ever, I'm hardly ever in the same, like, never mind zip code, 
like time zone with any of my clients. So it'd be very difficult for them to rear end me mm. or, or physically assault me in any way. <laughs> it would take a certain amount of dedication, wouldn't it? Mm. At least a plane ticket. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I had to put myself in that, uh, <laughs> I was safely far away, but um, I, I made the mistake of uh, reaching out to them. Nice. So let that be a lesson to all of you. Um, never go anywhere or try anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious if you see patterns. Like you must after, you know, what is it? Six to eight years of doing this. There must be some patterns like, you know, I, I it seems like all my designer friends have uh, seem to attract clients that would maybe show up on your website. I wonder if that's true, if there are other, you know, are copywriters equally susceptible or, or do you cover a whole range of clients, like even for, I don't know, like you just said, like, you know, you're an actor or you're some other kind of freelancer. Absolutely. I feel like the creative fields in particular, uh, have a lot of these crappy clients and that's because if a client's hiring you, it's, uh, well, like rarely does a client set out to be bad. I mean, rarely is it just a matter of like, oh, this guy's just a jerk like so he's going to be a crappy person to work with usually it's a matter of like miscommunication or like unclear expectations because when you hire a designer most people hire a designer for you know a logo or a website or whatever basically stuff they don't understand a craft they don't understand so in my experience and this isn't to say when i said like i i, have, I don't have a lot of crappy client experiences it's because i've learned to see them coming from a mile away now and that is 98% of it is learning how to avoid those situations altogether and see the client coming in fact i think one of the first uh, helpful articles we wrote for the clients from hell community was called uh, mark of the beast and it's like what do what do clients from hell look like <laughs> um <laughs> So there, there's a lot of commonalities and there's a lot of things, if we're being perfectly honest, our submitters, freelancers, that they can do to um, basically avoid the situation altogether. And most of them are cautionary tips. So like stuff to avoid before you get in bed with a bad client. It's like any crappy relationship. It's easier to avoid before it really gets started. But what to watch out for if if a client has ambiguous expectations, like a client will often come to a like a web designer and say, I want a website. And it's like, great. What do you want on this website? Now, the classic mistake a designer would make is asking like how many pages and things of that effect. Whereas what they should be asking is what do you need this website to do? Because that's really what the client cares about. Preach. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that um, bite me, but keep talking. I'll tell my story in a minute. Oh, please do, please do. Yeah, these aren't uh, these aren't foolproof tips, but uh, you follow enough of them, and you should uh, you should avoid the worst of it. But if if a client just has really ambiguous expectations for what they're looking for, like they just want a website because the businesses need websites, and then you make them a website, and it's like, well, I was hoping it would be you know shinier. Uh -huh. It's like, oh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's the things like that where a client has an idea in their head and they don't communicate it to you and you don't know what questions to ask to kind of to get your idea of what their idea is. And um, as a result, your expectations don't align for this working relationship and it all just starts to fall apart. I mean, I, I think we've all had clients like that. But let, you know what? Tell us your story. Well, so I had a client, in fact... I think this is the last client that I actually completed a project for. I picked up a couple others and then I finally came back and said, I don't have time. But uh, with this one in particular, they basically came to me and said, we want a social network and we want it to look like this. 
and they we want it to be able to do these things. And they were pretty specific about what they wanted it to do. But when I went in and started saying, okay, so in, on this particular part of the page, what exactly are you looking for? They said, well, we want it to look like Facebook. And I said, Ooh. okay. And so I went through Facebook with them, and I'm like, do you want this feature, this feature? You know, like every button on the freaking page. So I, I get through it and I'm, you know, I put together the proposal and I send it to him and I say, this is my proposal for kind of round one of this project. And they're like, oh, it looks great, you know, and I've got screenshots of Facebook and everything circled and marked and arrows and, you know, the whole nine yards. So I get it done and I go and I send it to him. And the one guy that's like super in charge, he's delighted. Mm-hmm. And everybody else underneath, including the project manager who was actually my client, they were all devastated. And, uh, you know, even after getting all of that clarification, I got the, we're really disappointed and we don't know if we want to continue in phase two and we might even, we might not even pay you except that I had made them pay me up front for my time. So, I mean, you know, and they were talking about how they could get their money back and the whole nine yards. And I'm like, look, I'm like, I built exactly what you asked for. And I went through and I clarified everything. So even then, a lot of times they just have no idea what they want. Did they at all outline why they were disappointed? Not really. Apparently, it was just, quote, not what they wanted. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, there there are so many things you can do. Like, if a client has lack of clarity on an idea, on, like, what the final project should be, the direction, what's going to be required for it, and what I, the goals are going to be. I probably shouldn't say this, but it really felt like they were trying to shake me down to get some money back. I was going to say, that's not going to stop the kind of person who's just going to kind of kind of use the two-year-old defense, which is, I don't want it anymore. Yeah, Uh, like something changed and it probably had nothing to do with you or they just, you know, wanted to get out of paying full price, which you definitely do see. And that actually brings me to uh, to yet another really, really good red flag. And this has been, in my personal experience, the best one. And that's if you ever have a client who's unappreciative. So you don't need necessarily to have clients who like pat you on the head after each project. But if a client expects time and behavior or discounts in this case for no other oh. reason than because they're the client, well, then you shouldn't work with them because it's, it's just the worst. Like a client who goes out of their way to say thank you is uh, maybe this is just because I'm Canadian and it's like a kink. But <laughs> if they go out of their way to show like how appreciative they are to me, like I want to go out of my way to do more for them. And it, it just it turns into a much better relationship when... um both parties are appreciating what the other party is bringing to it. Like most of your client relationships shouldn't be now. Some of them can be, but they shouldn't always be. This guy's paying me. So I work for this guy. A lot of the time you should see them as sort of almost partnerships. You're giving them your time and expertise. They're giving you money. Yes, it's very similar to a business transaction, but you're going to be working together through a lot of these projects, especially as you become a a more renowned or experienced freelancer. Uh, What you bring to the table is going to become more and more intangible and a client who appreciates that aspect of it especially if you're able to communicate it to them ooh, they're going to be wonderful down the line and anyone who doesn't is not going to get better any way you split it i Um, just i just want to pile on this one too i please do one of the red flags that comes up you were talking about you know appreciation and and you know like asking for favors just because they're the client and one of my big red flags is so do you negotiate on your rate you can ask me that once and I'll be thinking, okay, you know, maybe somebody told them that they should ask me that. But as soon as I tell you no, because I'll tell you no and definitively no, mm-hmm. if you ask me again, I'm done talking to you. 
because I know that I am going to be dickered over for every little bit of mm. any invoice I send. Sorry, I've never heard the term dickered over, but I immediately love it. <laughs> um, but no, that's very true. That's very true. I don't think it's bad for a client to ask once. I feel like that's oh, just... fair enough. That, that's like an aspect of business that I don't personally like to indulge in, but, you know, you should ask. But yeah, uh, it's funny you should say that, and I'm going to use this as a total moment of self-promotion, but uh, I just wrote a new book about money uh, called Hell to Pay, and one of the very most important lessons is never, ever negotiate on your rate. Uh, your rate is your rate. It's your livelihood. It's your income. You can't budge on that. You can you can budge on things like hours or deliverables or features or things or whatever. But I just want to underline how right you were not to negotiate on your rate. I'm sure you're you, you are a far more experienced freelancer than I am, actually, now that I now that I take a step back and stop talking about uh, what I've written recently. So I don't need to be patting you on the head for that. But uh, well, way to go. Way to go. I, I don't because it's bit me in the butt. I mean, it literally, well, not literally bit me in the butt, but <laughs> it has. I mean, to the point where I go ahead and I say, yeah, you know what? I like you. I'll give you, you know, a, a $20 per hour discount or something, you know, which is like a 10% discount on, you know, on my going rate at the time. Mm -hmm. And inevitably they come in and they think that it means that they can negotiate on invoices. They can negotiate on due dates. They can negotiate on everything else. Mm-hmm. It's just, no, no, I don't do that. Absolutely. It's the classic give a mouse a cookie. He'll um, expect a 20% discount on his next invoice for reasons that are super unclear usually. Mm. I'm trying to think of like a situation where giving a discount worked out. And I'm. it's really only been with the long-term clients that I trust not to take advantage of it. Like the, the kind of clients who I've established a relationship with. Because mm. once you start negotiating on rate or discounts, or any of that effect, and it's particularly early in the relationship, you're, you're setting a standard. It's the same reason why I very strongly encourage people not to work for free for clients. You can do your own work for free, and I encourage you to. It's a wonderful way to stay sane and uh, stay sharp. But uh, if you start working for free with a client, that's where the bar has been set. So anytime they have to pay you, it is immediately compared to that. Same goes for if you are working with a client and you give them a discount pretty upfront, then why would they ever want to pay your full amount? The argument you'd hear is like, well, now you got them hooked, but he got them hooked at a much lower rate. It's uh, give and take, and it rarely works out, in my opinion. It's a, it's a very good uh, litmus test you came up with. If they ask for a discount more than once and they refuse to uh, just appreciate that, that's how you do business. I also need to point out that your accent makes me really miss Curtis McHale, who used to be on the show. So. <laughs> Oh, I uh, I keep getting told I have an accent. Probably Describe by Americans. Accent. Yeah, yeah. The funny part is I'm half American. So. <laughs> Although I haven't really lived in the States, if we're being perfectly honest. So I have no uh, no excuse for it. All I can do is just add some Southern tang to my voice and hope that passes. Uh, but <laughs> apparently I, I get I get outed every time I'm uh, I'm talking to some, I guess, fellow Americans. Us Yanks. Yeah. <laughs> you Yanks and your delightful podcasts. Well, as I'm listening to your examples, I'm recognizing even more strongly that I've oriented my entire consulting business around avoiding all of these problems. Mm -hmm. Sort of, sort of, uh, not totally accidentally, but from a different angle. It's like I, I didn't, uh, I didn't set out to avoid clients from how I more set out to be able to charge clients a lot of money. And I knew if I need, if I was going to do that, I was going to have to add tons of value to their business in order to make me seem like a good deal, you know, expensive, but worth it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're running down the list of all the things that I see people dealing with that are 
like none of this stuff ever happens to me because it's like I only work with clients who I'd want to have drinks with. So it's automatically people I like. I make sure to be attracting enough clients that I can be picky about who I work with, which means I'm not desperate and have to take on people who have red flags. In order to attract all those clients, you have to make yourself be the go-to person for some specialty so that you're kind of like the go-to expert or like an authority in your field on whatever it is, uh, securing WordPress sites or whatever, and attract clients who come to you instead of you reaching out to them. And they usually they come to you and they're like, geez, can we get on your calendar? You know, they're, they're more, the power frame is, is reversed. It's not like, it's not like a client vendor relationship. It's more like you said earlier, a partnership and they're just hoping to get on your calendar. And you know, it's oftentimes they'll pay in advance. Like, Oh yeah, I've got a spot in three months. If you want to put down a deposit now and then pay the rest before we get started. You know, that's another thing I do ask for money a hundred percent upfront. So there's no dickering later about that stuff. So it's, it's wild. I, I can see that having a focus on attracting the ideal clients for me, the ones who I can deliver the highest value to has kind of had this flip side, you know, the sort of farther down the chain, if you think of it like that, it's had this other effect of insulating me from anything like this. I've never, I've got a couple of stories from way back that are nowhere near as bad as getting rear-ended, but I can think of one time that somebody, somebody contacted me and we did the deal. We said, okay, we're going to do this. And they sent me a check for 10 grand. And the following day, the kickoff meeting was going to be with the whole management team. And, you know, my project contact wasn't the, the top dog on the food chain. So, uh, we get in this meeting the next day and her boss gets on the phone and was just instantaneously all of the things that you just described as red flags. And I recognized it a mile away and, and I didn't, I knew that it was never going to be worth 10 grand and I was going to end up regretting it if I went forward. So as soon as that call was over, I called back my contact and I was like, yeah, I'm sending your check back. I'm not working with you guys. That lady's insane. Oh and, uh, and she was like, and she was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll keep her under control. She is nuts, but don't worry about it. I can, I can deal with this. She's scared away tons of people all the time. <laughs> you know, she sounds meaner than she is and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Thanks anyway. I'm, I'm shocked you guys even bothered to have me on the show because that was a, a fairly good summation of how to, uh, how you only really need to have one bad experience to know what to look for. Oh, and <laughs> when I said, uh, it, it's like a rite of passage having a bad client, I kind of do believe that. Like, I, I'm in no way encouraging people to just go seek out a terrible relationship with a client, but it's just, you only need to have it once to realize, like, yeah, never, never doing that again. And so much of, you know what? It, it's really funny. Um, but one thing I've really noticed, especially working on the site, and reading the comments to each story. And, and it's how working with clients, it's if there's any relationship parallel, it's almost like a romantic relationship. Like when you were talking about how now that your clients are the ones seeking you out, how that uh, that power dynamic is a little bit different and how it's more of a partnership as opposed to like a client vendor relationship. <laughs> These are all true of any good uh, romantic relationship as well, aren't they? And it's yeah. when you treat it like a partnership, when you uh, when you work together, when expectations are clear, when you communicate, when you see it through to the end, all these little affirmations I'm throwing at you could easily be on a Dr. Phil episode. Um, but that's just it. Once, once you, once you start getting some experience, you, you really do learn how to qualify your clients. Like, you know what 
you work well with and uh, what to avoid. You know what kind of rate is worth your time and that your time is worth your rate and you don't budge on that. Um, and a client who really is pushy trying to do that, it's like it's the same if they are pushy about um, the minutia of your invoices, like your hourly rate or whatever. They're like, I don't know. I see you spent 15 minutes doing admin work for us. Like, oh, why don't you go into the specifics of that? That kind of client is, is going to spend more of your time going over your invoice than whatever you're probably invoicing for. And that's not going to be worth it. But once you do know what kind of projects and services you're qualified for, what kind of people you work well with, and if you've brought your career to the point where you have uh, more people wanting to work with you than work you're able to do, oh, you are in a golden position and you should never lose sight of that. Uh, and you should never lose appreciation for those good clients. One thing I did mention was expectations. Mm -hmm. And I do want to kind of underline that point because that is, as far as I can tell, like the keystone, most important catalyst for good or bad client relationships. So this means like the scope of work, the fees, the budget, the timeline, the milestones, the deadlines. These all need to be understood, clarified and written out, uh, ideally in the contract uh, before you start work. And equally important is whatever the client is responsible for and what they need to deliver. Um, like I have one client who still work with and we've we've since gotten past this together through beautiful communication. Like I said, relationships, they're important. But he was really bad at getting me stuff when I needed it in order to to get his work done on time like he would take three weeks to deliver like this absolutely essential image for a book that's going out or was supposed to go out two weeks ago um now fortunately this wasn't the kind of client who's like uh all right well here's the you know that image you needed uh will you still be able to deliver it uh, for its deadline in two hours it's like well yeah so a client who appreciates what they need to bring to the table what you bring to the table and uh each of you are clear on that Ooh, it, it's going to be so much better in the long run yeah, Michael Port says, unstated expectations are resentments waiting to happen. Mm, that's totally very true. Nice. Yeah, very true. Very true. And I, we, we all, it comes up often on the show that the solution to lots of problems is lots of project communication. Mm. Oh, absolutely. The more intense the project is, the more high risk or long term or whatever it is you get into crunch time. I've seen it happen a bunch of times when I manage devs. They'll climb into their cave and just try and code their way out of the of a problem mm -hmm. uh, instead of saying, hey, there's a problem here. I just want to let you know. I think I can code my way out of it, but FYI. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing that, you know, they uh, they burn the midnight oil and they're trying to make it work and then they get punchy and then they ruin the code base and then they need to start from scratch and then <laughs> everything's farther behind and then there's nothing the manager can do about it. And, oh, man. Oh, Jonathan, communication. I've never, ever done that. <laughs> ever. <laughs> to any of my clients. So I don't know what you're talking about. That's great. That's good to know. <laughs> I've got a funny story that just occurred to me. Uh, I've been a client from hell. Oh. And I, I recommend to people, in fact, especially people who charge by the hour, to hire someone by the hour to do creative work for you. Not, not at your specialty, but at a different specialty. And it is so eye-opening what it feels like to not know if this person that you hired who, you know, is working remotely in, in their code cave, you don't know if at the end of the week you're going to get an invoice for 80 hours at 100 bucks an hour or two hours at 100 bucks an hour. And what does that do to you? That turns you into a micromanaging freak because you don't know if the clock is running or not. If the person's not communicating with you, you know, all of a sudden you're that guy, you're that needy boyfriend. 
hey, where are you? I just wanted to see what's going on. You know, did you get any uh, updates? You know, thought we could get together and maybe talk about the project. And it's hilarious how what it does to you if you are. And frankly, it has a lot to do with paying, you know, offering services by the hour, paying for things by the hour where the person's not in front of you working. Mm. Uh, it creates this weird, like, you know, there are a lot of hours in a week. There's a lot more than 40. And if you're paying somebody American rates for any kind of creative work, it's at least 60 bucks. So somebody could sort of spin their wheels, it, you know, basically do that thing that I just described. They go into the basement and they make a bunch of bad decisions and then they come out and they want to bill you for 120 hours of work that had zero beneficial outcome or maybe achieved the goals. But due to their poor judgment, it was three times more time consuming than it should have been. And the, the crux of the problem there is that the person who's doing the work is billing based on their time and not the not the desired outcome. And that leads to like that leads to this exact problem. And it's hilarious if if you bill by the hour. Dear listener, I urge you to hire someone to do something by the hour for you and you will realize how torturous it, it's torturous to be on that end of the equation because you don't know what's going on. You don't know if you're going to get what you want. When you do finally get something, it might not be what you wanted because maybe you didn't do a good job saying what you wanted. Uh, man, it's, it's a total nightmare. And I've done this with the designers on my own website where somebody Somebody says, oh, yeah, the design's ready. Here, here it is. And they upload it. And I hate it. And it's my fault because I didn't give them good direction. And then they hit me with a bill for like 2000 bucks for CSS I'm going to throw away. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, it's brutal. Mm -hmm. It's brutal. And it's anyway. very easy for that to, to kind of cut both ways. But uh, I, that, is, that is a part of it. I know this sounds funny coming from a guy who runs a site called Clients from Hell. But I, a lot of people do not appreciate how difficult it can be to be a client and to need like a quality freelancer, be they a designer, a coder, a writer, and, and to like find that person, lock them down, continuously produce good work with them. I had a client, great client, and in fact, they were giving me too much work. So it got to the point where I had to drop some of their projects. And so I really wanted to transition them as well as possible. So I reached out to some of my colleagues and I set up some referrals now. My personal mistake in this situation was uh, I hadn't worked with a couple of these colleagues, and they were the ones who were hungriest for the work. One of them was mostly full-time. They did some freelancing on the side, but they were looking to go pure freelance. And I was like, great. Got your first client for you. Great guy. I've worked with him for years. Always pays on time. Um, very communicative. You'll have to, you know, lay, laying out the like pros and cons, the foibles. And uh, anyways, this client ended up paying this person I referred, I think, uh, eight hours at their hourly rate. So a few hundred dollars. And this person I referred just had basically decided not to finish the project. They decided to go a different way with uh, what they were going to do in their career, take some time off. And that eight hours was purely just the courting period, essentially, like figuring out if they'll work well together you know, figuring out exactly what this client needed um, and really just trying to get them up to speed in all these projects. And yeah, so my my client got burned for several hundred dollars. And apparently, like, that can just be the fact of life for some clients just trying to find the right person for the job. Uh, like, we talk about how the power dynamics of a relationship, it's very easy for a client to dangle the paycheck as the uh, the cheese at the end of a stick. I'm not sure if that's how the metaphor works, but um, it's very easy for us to see the clients as the one with all the power. But it's very easy for freelancers to screw over clients. And, and if, if you at least appreciate that, 
you might appreciate why a client would be cagey, why a client might ask after your rate, why a client might be concerned about how you're spending your time. As much as I like, I'm like micromanaging clients are the worst, and they are. Um, I do appreciate where they're coming from. And in fact, the fact that I understand where they're coming from, uh, they usually, as long as I communicate that to them, they appreciate it. They, they feel more at ease knowing that I understand why they're not at ease necessarily. I had another guy design a website for me once. I can't remember what the deal was, something with his laptop. So he wanted to work at my office and it was like, oh, okay. Like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind actually being there for some of your questions. Took four times as long as it was supposed to. Not a great experience for either of us, I don't think. It wasn't a great way for him to work and it wasn't, uh, anyways. It took him four months to give me all my FTP login details and all that. And not because he was holding them because I hadn't paid or anything. Just he lost them. He mismanaged them. And uh, so this website, was, uh, it was like the side project I wanted to work on. But just that four months of waiting and like all the time and money, more than anything, the time I had wasted on this guy just completely soured the project. And he just he killed it and it cost me like, I mean, not a huge amount of money, like $800. But it was my God, <laughs> like, it was just so easy for him to, uh, to completely break that project uh, down to nothing. And he didn't even mean to. It was just like, oh, right. Here's an email from that guy asking for the password for this thing. Eh. Like, and that was it. I, I was sending him like three emails a week. It was infuriating. I, I do want to jump in here and just say that, yeah, I've been on both ends of that. I've been the bad freelancer. I've been the, the, the client that kind of got messed over. And it's really tough, especially when you can really kind of smell that they really are going to be that micromanaging person just to deal with their own insecurity. That's not really your fault, but... It sucks working for those guys. And, oh, for sure. You know, so sometimes they're a friend of mine, and I know that, you know, I can kind of talk them around that tendency to want to micromanage everything. But if, if it even smells like, because at this point, I don't have to take clients. And so I do it sometimes just because I want to work on a project. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, if it feels like it's not going to be fun because they're, you know, they have those insecurities, then again, you know, I just walk away from them because you have to basically reeducate them on the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. And some of those folks will just never get over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, sorry to, to keep just nailing home this point, but it really does. Uh, I, I always just use expectations as my rationale for anything I do for a client. And anytime I try to kind of coach their behavior away from a certain way, uh, it's one of the reasons why a lot of freelancers are encouraged not to work hourly as soon as they're able to get away from it, I don't think. Because once you start working towards a goal, you can kind of justify every every minute of time as uh, time spent working towards that goal. But if you're not measuring, if you're delivering on value as opposed to time, that, that kind of sidesteps that issue altogether. But uh, kind of hitting on yet another point uh, we've brought up several times, and that's the communication one. If you're like, yeah, I expect this to take 10 hours. You're both like, okay, 10 hours sounds reasonable. And then you, you're working on it. And then maybe at around hour eight, you're like, oh, this is going to take more than 10 hours. That's when you get in touch with your client and let them know that, yep, this is what we thought it would take. Um, this is what it's actually taking before I reach that milestone and, you know, possibly even the entire budget for this project. Um, let's reevaluate. Let's figure out if it's worth 20 hours of my pay at your whatever. And yeah, so that's just it. Uh, once if, if expectations do become misaligned, if if just the nature of the project of whatever you're working on changes, as long as you guys are touching base, communicating and being clear on red flags, whether like the client is micromanaging you 
or you are you underestimated how long it was going to take you, educating both parties can be really necessary and it can make both of your lives a lot better in the long run. Hmm. Eric Davis, who's a sometimes panelist on the show, mm-hmm. has a an interesting approach that I think is super, super stru- uh, solid for people who are still billing in a time unit. So if you're billing by the hour for some kind of development work or by the week or whatever. And when he'll do an estimate, he will additionally for each feature, he'll say, you know, I estimate that it's going to take 20 hours. And then he has like a confidence indicator about how sure he is that it's only going to take that long. Mm -hmm. And what that ends up doing is when the client gets that, they can say, okay, he's thinking it's going to take 20, but, but he could, you know, but there are some risk factors where maybe a third party API is involved that he's not familiar with. So he might, you know, might turn out that that API is terrible or difficult to work with or misleading. So there's a 50% chance that this number is wrong. Because what the client wants to do when you're billing by the hour or by some time unit instead of by the outcome, what the client wants to do is prioritize the things. And they can't prioritize the things without knowing how much they cost. And you're the person who's in, in control of that number. So if you're going to insist on not giving a fixed price for the feature or for the project, and you're going to say, well, we're going to do time and materials here. It's going to, you know, a week is $2,000 or $5,000 and, and, or an hour is $200 or whatever. You have to give them some indication as to how solid your estimate, how solid you think your estimate is, because that can change the way they prioritize how they want to spend their money and, and how they want to manage their risk, which is something that people don't think about typically is it's not just money and it's not just time. It's also risk. Mm-hmm. So if they see, you know, if you have a client who sees that, uh, oh, okay, you know, the, the calendar widget feature uh, is going to be, you know, I'm, that's going to be beneficial for my business. I'm going to be able to roll that out to a bunch of clients who are going to be very excited about that. I can do webinars about it. Everybody's going to be jazzed. But, you know, and it's, you know, this is a weird gut instinct thing because pricing is so psychological, but they'll be like, and it's, you know, and all of that wonderfulness is worth about $2,000 to me. And so if they see an estimate that says $2,000 and only 50% certainty, then they're going to be like, uh, maybe we can cut scope on that a little bit to get us into a range that's more comfortable, less risky, less or more likely to give good ROI, or maybe we deprioritize it and go with something else that's got a much higher certainty. Maybe it's more expensive. Maybe it's $3,000, but it's like 90% certain that it's going to come in on budget. Maybe that's more attractive for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So I always found that to be super interesting. And it also, in the, from the communication standpoint, even if you don't bill by the week or you don't bill by the feature, you can, uh, even if you're billing a, a fixed price project, you say it's going to be $50,000 for this entire e-commerce site. Uh, you can say, I, I usually would put in a section about risks and assumptions and things that we don't really know how it's going to go. It could go horribly wrong. Your price won't change, but it might affect the timeline, things like that. And then when when something does blow up in your face, then it's not like a surprise. It's kind of like it, it, it still paints you as the expert, even though it blew up in your face, because you were fairly sure it was going to blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, this is a ticking time bomb. I'm willing to tackle it and commit to a, a fixed price for it. But FYI, this could blow up and it might require more 
input from your side, which is time from you guys, or it might, you know, prolong the release or whatever. But, you know, back to the communication thing, it's like if you, anything that you can see in advance like that, even if it's very fuzzy and vague, it's worth putting into the conversation, whether that's the proposal or in your project management system or whatever. I just want to jump in on this because I've done this before. I've also done like best case, worst case, and what I think it's actually going to take. And every time, whatever the lowest number is, when I pass that up, I always get the, you said it was only going to take two days and it's been a week. I, I, every time, every time, every, every client I've done that with every time they come back and they're just ticked off because it wasn't the best case scenario. And it's like, it's like, look, I told you that I was going to probably have to deal with some of these other things and that I really thought it was going to take this long. And in reality, it could take up to this long. And yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know how Eric does it because yeah, inevitably, if I give them any list of numbers, one number, two numbers, a number and a risk factor, they come back and they go, well, you said it was going to take you a day. And it's just, yeah, then, then it depends on how up. often it's happening. It, I, I have had the same experience when you, when you give somebody an estimate, they hear quote, you know, it's like, oh, this yeah. project is going to be, I estimate that it's going to be about 50 grand. And they're like, you know, if you, if you go to 60 grand, they freak out. Yep. And I've definitely seen that. Uh, I think that the trick with hourly or weekly billing, and the reason why I think Eric can get away with it is because he's an excellent estimator. So he is rarely wrong. And if you're rarely wrong, like, you know, so Chuck, in a scenario where you've got, you know, a total $50,000 project and you once or twice, you go over with a $500 feature, you go to a thousand. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to imagine that a client, unless they're unreasonable, I, okay, it's hard for me to imagine them making a big deal out of that. But yeah. if people are bad at estimating, if every single estimate is wrong and they're never too high, they're always too low, then that's a systemic problem and you're never going to get better at it as a freelancer. You're never going to get better at estimating your hours in my opinion, unless you've got skin in the game, AKA you lose money if you're bad at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, uh, you hit on so many great things there. I, I really like Eric's rule for, uh, like here, here's my estimate and here's how confident I am in that. Cause it, it addresses something that I've never had very good advice on. And that's how, especially like the more inexperienced you are as a freelancer, the harder it is to estimate these things and the more difficult it is to predict these potential issues. Like it, it's the reason so many people listen to wonderful shows like yours and the one we run, <laughs> Clients from Hell podcast. Check it out on iTunes. But um, it's the same issue wherein like if you're inexperienced, you don't know what to ask. You don't know exactly how long these things are going to take. Almost every professional freelancer I know has one of those early projects they can tell me about where they estimated like 20 hours and they ate the cost for the extra 80 hours because mm-hmm. – that was just what they estimated. And like, they didn't know all these things would happen. They didn't know to account for revisions in their contract and sort of to play the flip side of like Eric's upfront estimate and like how ambiguous that estimate might be. One thing I find a lot of people do that drops the ball is they don't see these client relationships through to the very end. And what I mean by that is so like you underline your revision and follow up policy prior to the end of the project. That's, that's number one. But then after the project, try and figure out what 
worked and what didn't work with this project and with this client. Like ask the client difficult questions as a sort of like, I don't know what the term would be. Well, let's just call it follow up procedure. But do ask like, what could I have done better? Like what was an area where I frustrated you? Sometimes these are things you cannot at all control. And that's fine. And if, if the worst thing going wrong is that like, oh, you know, the economy went down. It's like, well, sorry about that. But usually you will get you will get useful feedback on that, like the client might uh, price anchor because your initial estimate was so low. So in their head, like despite the fact that you said, yeah, 50,000, but it could very likely be 70,000. And then when you actually quote on it, and let's say it's 65, they're just like, well, I had 50,000 stuck in my head, despite the fact that you very clearly said afterwards, probably closer to 70. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter because you, you will quickly learn that uh, if you if you give a client two numbers, they're only going to hear the smaller one, assuming that's the better one. Yeah, <laughs> eventually what I wound up doing was uh, I quit giving them the best case scenario. Oh, yeah. So then it was, here's how long I think it's going to take and here's how long it could conceivably take, which was effectively what Eric does, except it wasn't a percentage. It was, uh, it was an out there number. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that seemed to work better once I switched. But yeah, for a long time, it was that best case scenario. They just totaled up all the best case scenario. They saw I would have it done in two weeks. And then they were mad when it went to four. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a real catch-22 of our style of work. Whenever I estimate time, money, whatever, I always just assume at least another 25% on top. Yep. Worst case scenario, you finish under budget or ahead of time and the client couldn't be more pleased. It's, it's funny. If I told two separate clients, this will take two weeks and cost you X amount of money. Um, and I told the one of these two clients that like probably it'll take two and a half weeks and it'll cost you X plus one. And I deliver it exactly when I thought it would actually be done. The one that I gave the longer estimate to is almost always more appreciative for it being done. I've had clients give me bonuses on top of things just because they were so pleased that it it, it met under time and under budget or whatever. And even like uh, some people are like, well, aren't you losing projects because um, you're not quoting competitively? And I mean, this is sort of a roundabout lesson, but uh, don't don't quote as... uh, don't quote too competitively. Don't try to be the cheapest guy in the room. Maybe second cheapest, but never the cheapest guy in the room. It, it's never a good idea. It is not a great business strategy for uh, almost any freelancer who, uh, at least any freelancer in a really developed country, uh, you're not going to be looking at a lot of long-term business growth and you're going to be running into a lot of cheap clients, which is probably the worst uh, symptom of always trying to have the cheapest uh, offering. Insert pitch for value pricing here. <laughs> no joke. Yeah, I mean, like, value pricing solves all these problems mm-hmm. because you cannot be the lowest bid. You can be the highest bid. I usually am the highest bid, but you just change the whole game because you're willing to take the risk of your ability to estimate the scope of work. So if you see, you know, somebody's getting estimates for 50 grand and I come in and I say it's 85 grand, but that's not an estimate. That's what you're going to pay period. And, you know, do you want to work with somebody who's willing to stand by their, their price? Or are you going to work with a bunch of people who are maybe just lowballing you to get the work? And then once it's too late to really change the horse you're riding, they take you up to a hundred and it happens all the time. It, you know, I was like the, the reason, a huge reason why I switched from hourly to value, or really it was one of the, I, I didn't probably recognize this before I did it, but immediately after I switched, I suddenly realized that I could guarantee customer satisfaction. 
And I could never do that before. I could never guarantee customer satisfaction before because the hours are the hours. That's how long it took me. And like, that's the way I was billed out by my employer. And that's, you know, I had to account for them. If I didn't bill the client the hours, then my boss would be like, how come you didn't bill out these hours? And I'd be like, I did, but I had to eat them because blah, blah, blah. It gets all yeah. weird because everybody's focused on this arbitrary measurement of work output that it's totally irrelevant to the, uh, the desired outcome of the project. If you actually drill in and say, instead of them saying, Hey, we need you to uh, update the MailChimp API. Ready? Go. Instead of that, you say, well, wait a second. Why do you need me to update the MailChimp API? Well, we need to get blah, 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 blah. And then you say, well, why do you need that? And they say, well, because, you know, we really need to up our marketing automation game. And you say, well, why don't you, why don't you just use drip instead of using MailChimp? And I'm like, well, we hadn't thought of that. Or we did think of that, but we can't do it because of X, Y, and Z. And you keep asking why, 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 try and talk them out of hiring you. All of a sudden you've got a, a, a good idea of why they're doing the project or why they called you in the first place. And you can get a sense of like, oh, I could probably price this around, let's just say 50 grand because they're going to get a ton of benefit out of it. And I'm fairly certain that I can, I can do this quick enough that my effective hourly rate, if I wanted to track my hours and do the math after the fact, would still be really high. Uh, but I'm not even going to worry about that. I'm just going to say, yeah, it's 50 grand. Uh, I'll stick to that come hell or high water. And, you know, you can go out and get estimates from other people if you want. But, you know, if you want to take on all that risk, you can. But I'm willing to take it on for you. And then we can really partner. It's, it sidesteps all of this. Oops. Sidesteps all of this stuff. Uh, but it freaks people out because, like you said, when freelancers are first starting out, they don't know their ass from their elbow. So they have no idea how to do anything that I just said. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, they get this panicky, like, oh, but I'll, oh, they'll destroy me. I'll, I'll get skull creep to death or they'll take advantage of me or all this other stuff. And the fact of the matter is most people are nice. And if you let yourself be vulnerable to them, they will not take advantage of you. And if you if you come into the scenario with basically a prenup type of scenario, then they're going to be defensive because you're being defensive. And now everybody's defensive. So what do you do? You fight about price. You fight about hours entries. You fight about invoice amounts, blah, 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 blah. And everybody's ignoring the actual goal of what they want to get done. And they're fighting about administrative trivia. So it's, it drives me crazy. And I will get off my soapbox. <laughs> I, before you do, let me just slow clap you off that bad boy. That was, uh, <laughs> that was brilliant. I was taking notes as you were going along, like, oh, I'll ask him about this, this, and this. And then you circled back to it. And it's like, okay, eloquently put, eloquently addressed. Um, yeah, great job. Great job. <laughs> it's funny because you talk about that mindset. And uh, when we started the show, I was pretty new to freelancing. I'd been doing it for a year or so. Uh, listeners should go listen to episode four <laughs> and then compare it to what Jonathan just said. Because that, that was exactly the mindset we were in was, well, but what about this? And is scope creep and, and all the things and, and hourly is just, you get paid for your time. And yeah, I mean, having come back around to, uh, you know, having listened to Jonathan for a while and having spoken with uh, Kirk Bowman and some of these other folks who have talked about value-based pricing and then having actually implemented it with different bids or different proposals for different projects. It's a whole lot less stressful and mm -hmm. I don't have to go in and check. Remember to press the button when I start working and press the button when I stop working and press the button when I get up to go to the bathroom and press the button when I, uh, you know, scratch my nose and all that stuff because it's not 
directly related to the project. Um, Am I educating myself right now or should I be billing for this? Right. You know, like that whole thing. And then trying to explain to the client why you added all the time that they fought with you over the invoice to the next invoice. <laughs> I've had to, I've done that. I've done that too. Yeah. I call it pulling out the baseball bat. Do you destroy, you utterly destroy the client relationship? Just over. Yeah. Trust gone. I will say that Bryce brought up an interesting point earlier about like how, but really how does a freelancer start doing this without just going through the school of hard knocks? And I am coming around to the thinking that more and more it's value pricing is really hard. I'm first person to admit that I think people need help getting from hourly to value because it's such a gigantic mind shift. And if they keep clenching, they, they clench up when they do it, it's going to wreck it and they're just going to get killed because uh, they will get scope creep to death. You got to unclench. Uh, but that's not, it's easier said than done. So I think, uh, I think the trick is, or the approach is, or at least one of the approaches to go from hourly to value is to create a productized service, which we've talked about before. It's a little buzzwordy, but mm-hmm. what you do is you come up, you know, maybe you've, you've done a job once or twice, or maybe you, you have an idea for a job that you could do that has a fairly fixed scope that doesn't get wildly bigger or smaller, no matter who hires you to do it. And you price that like publicly. So you create a sales page for this productized service. Maybe it's increasing WordPress performance or uh, securing WordPress or, you know, integrating with MailChimp API or something really specific about integrating, uh, migrating from MailChimp to Drip, something like that. Uh, that's fairly fixed scope. And you create that as a product and you price it at, at an amount, like it's a hamburger, say it's a thousand bucks for my migration to MailChimp to Drip service. The, the value thing will still work. It's just in reverse. So clients who hear about this thing will self-select based on the value that they will get out of it. So if you, if some clients come along and they say, Oh, I'll never get, I'll never get the value. I never get a thousand dollars worth of value out of that. I've only got 10 people in my MailChimp list. Like I could move that over manually, but then someone stumbles across you that's got, you know, a SaaS with 10,000 active monthly users and they're, you know, printing money with their mailing list. And they want to move over to Drip for some of the new features, then all of a sudden it's worth a thousand bucks, like no brainer. So it's still a value. It's it's value priced in a sense, but I think that's a little bit of a stretch of the term. But I guess what I would say is that value concepts are at play, but you've just created a, a fixed scope productized service where it's going to be totally high touch. You're going to do everything manually. There's no automation or anything like that. But you have a price for this outcome. And people who find that outcome more valuable than a thousand dollars are going to line up at your door, and then you can uh, rate, just continually raise the price. Like some some of my friends will just every time they sell one of these things, they'll double the price, or not double it every time, but increase the price every time, so that uh, they're like, well, if it sells at a thousand, it'll sell at two thousand. If it sells at two thousand, it'll sell at three thousand, and they <laughs> it works, it works, it works well. So I think that that's that's how you play on easy mode. If you are just starting out and you've got something that you're really good at, you try and come up with a, a marketing angle where you can have this fixed scope, fixed price service, and then market that. And then that can be a doorway into your custom services after the fact. So people are like, damn, you did a great job with that migration. What else do you do? Oh, yeah, I can do whatever. And, you know, I can integrate that back into your e-commerce site or I can integrate that back into your membership site so that you can segment people based on which emails they've seen or whatever. 
but I think that's the way to go. If I had a, you know, if my brother was just starting out in freelancing, I, that's absolutely what I would tell him to do. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very smart stopgap solution between like charging an hourly and charging explicitly for value with every client you meet. I mean, your, your clients are qualifying you for themselves. So, so you don't even need to do the whole courting process. You just need to basically list your price. If you have this problem and it's worth this much to you, I'll fix it. Great. Uh, it's, that's dead simple. And, um, it takes all the work out for you. This is, uh, Philip jumping in here. Sorry to Yay, sneak in, Phillip. sneak in through the back door. Hey, Philip, we missed I'm you. here. Hey, Bryce. Um, yeah, I have to lock that. So, <laughs> yeah, you should lock that next time, Chuck. I, I wanted to touch on the idea that I think scope is not like this binary thing where the project is either done or not done. And, and what I mean by that is I think, I think there's a, a lot of exceptions to this, but B, I think there's also quite a few projects where a range of scope is able to produce value. It's not like, you know, you get over this threshold and there's no value at all. So that's like yet another sort of subtle way to achieve client satisfaction is by uh, sort of collaborating more tightly on the scope and allowing the scope to be flexible so that the client can invest what they want to invest and they can get you know, value out of that investment. And, you know, no one is risking too much when, when you do that. I don't know if I said that very well, but, uh, I, I think far too often we just think of scope as this kind of binary thing. It's either done or it's not done. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really important note to make now that you mention it. And that was something I did like as the, the productized surface versus the, the charging for value is the scope is fixed. Um, and if you do start charging the value, that's where you need to understand the scope through and through, especially if you are kind of using it as your your wiggle room uh, bank account, as I like to call it sometimes. Because mm -hmm. once you start to anticipate what might need to happen, what changes, what features, what deliverables can be shifted or might need to be included, once you can anticipate that, you can deal with that. But if it if it kind of just drops on your lap, it, it's much harder to come up to the client and be like, oh, surprise probably have to charge you for this. Um, and that's why you get so many younger freelancers, uh, or I should say more inexperienced freelancers eating those, uh, scope creep costs as opposed to, uh, using, uh, Phillips insights, which, uh, I think are very worth, uh, very worth reiterating. Yeah. I've, I've had many a meal of, uh, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> <laughs> eating hours with more hours on the side, mm. <laughs> some hour sauce. That's right. Feast on those, uh, unpaid hours. So I want to get into a, kind of another aspect of this topic. So let's say that you have a client from hell. You're listening to the show and you're going, oh, man, like rear-ended. I wish that was all I was dealing with. And you're trying to figure out, so I, I want to go try Jonathan's approach and set up some productized consulting, but I got, I got to dump this guy now, like yesterday, because I've already passed through. I, I The projects that I really hated go through phases. It's gee, I'm kind of miserable. And then it's, okay, now I'm really miserable. And then it's, if I had known, I never would have taken this project in the first place, which if you're at that point, just quit now. And then you get to the point where it's like, okay, I absolutely can't take this anymore. How do I get out of this? How do I quit? How do I tell these people that I just, I can't spend another day with my eyes bleeding over their code and my ears bleeding every time I talk to them? Well, anyone else want to take that or should I? Yeah, I do. I have to counsel people on this constantly. And uh, it, the answer is it really depends on a lot of factors because to nuke a relationship like that is a very 
it's very delicate. It can be very delicate. In reality, I've only ever done it at the very beginning of a project, which I actually talked about earlier. And you just send the money back and, and it's yeah. not, it's not like you guys are, you know, six months into a project that was supposed to be three months, but now it's looking like 12. That's like, oh, they haven't even gotten started. They haven't invested anything. They, they just literally cut the check. I didn't even cash it. And, you know, boom, boom, boom. Just pull off that bandaid. It's no big deal. They're never going to be a good client. And that's just the way it goes. Now, I have at times been on that forced march to hell at the end of a project where I value priced it. And it's, you know, I thought it was going to take a year, but it took two years. And, you know, so my effective hourly rate was half what I was hoping. And you might get to the end of that and say, it's happened to me not on that particular project. That's, that's the worst project I've ever had in terms of call it scope creep or call it my bad estimation. And it really wasn't even that bad. And I would work with that client again in a second if they had a project that uh, they needed help with. But I've had other projects where the scope creep was very, you know, the, the, the client was definitely to blame for a lot of scope creep and it, it, doing my best to manage it was just tedious. You know, it's tedious. It's just a bad fit. It ended up being a bad client relationship. I wasn't a good fit for them. They were not a good fit for me. And whenever that's happened, which has been fairly rare, I'll get to the end of the project and I'll, I'll finish it. I'll drag the ball across the finish line, kicking and screaming. And there's almost always a V2 that comes after that. And that's when I'll be like, look, you guys, you know, we saw how this just went. I'm not pointing fingers at you or at me, but it was just not a good fit. And I don't think I'm the right person for you for this next phase. I'm happy to make myself available to hand it over to another developer. Maybe I even recommend a couple of other developers that they can talk to uh, and that sort of thing. And just try and I think it's pretty important to always at all times, no matter what, do the right thing to the extent that you can, because, you know, it's a small world, number one. And number two, anybody who wants to sue you can sue you. And probably most people would immediately get put out of business if they got sued, even if it was completely frivolous. So, you know, I don't care what your contract says. If you get sued and win, you'll still probably go out of business. So it's like, I think you, I think you want to keep people happy to the extent that you can. And the, the, a really risky thing to do would be to fire a client in, you know, in the middle or sort of near the finish line when it gets to that horrible phase that everybody hates when the launch is de is looming, the deadline is looming and the to-do list just keeps getting longer and you're burning the midnight oil and you're watching your effective hourly rate go down and everybody's fighting and it's so tempting to to want to make that go away. But at that point, even if, if you quit at that point and even gave back all the money that they had paid you up to that point, you're still asking for a lawsuit. That's just going to be, that would just be a jerk move. So I, I think if you're, if you're up to your eyeballs in it, it I totally appreciate uh, what Chuck's saying is like, if it's a nightmare client from hell, then fire them if you think it's the right thing to do for both parties. I don't think it's always the right. I think there, there are situations you can be in where it is definitely not the right thing to do for both parties. And it might just be that you have to bite the bullet and finish this particular project and then hand them off to somebody else. Uh, this is a good time to point out that uh, this is why I don't take on projects that are going to take six months. Uh, if I was going to do a software project now, it would be a maximum of a month. 
maybe, maybe three, but probably even not. I, I try to break these things down into phases that have uh, specific outcomes and are probably only going to take 10 or 20 hours of coding, maybe charge 20 grand for it and, you know, get in and out. So you don't put yourself in this position that you've got this monolithic massive project that goes horribly wrong because I, I take on the risk in the projects I do because I give a fixed bid. So I don't want them to be giant. I want them to be bite-sized pieces of stability is how I refer to it. So like, we'll get you to this point of stability and then we'll reassess. We'll get you to the next point of stability and then we'll reassess. You know, it's like build the skateboard, build a scooter, build a bike, build a motorcycle, build a car instead of building the wheels, building the frame, building the steering wheel, building the seats, building the roof, building the windshield. Because you don't have a car until you finish the windshield on that second approach. But if the first approach, at least you could stop on the skateboard or you can stop on the scooter and they've got something working for the money that they spent. Yeah. I have to say, I've only ever completely burned the bridges once. And it was just because no matter how I tried to quit, no matter how hard I tried to quit, no matter what, they wouldn't leave me alone until I basically offended them. But yeah, I completely agree with everything that Jonathan said, because for the most part, you can deal with people. And if you can find a good place to break, then yeah, you don't have to deal with nearly as much stuff. For sure. For sure. I really like uh, how Jonathan breaks his uh, projects into phases. That's um, that's a very easy early mistake to make is to take on these uh, monolithic ones, these these giant sprawling projects. And those are the ones that can so easily get away from you. And if the client relationship starts going south in the middle of that, oh man, that is more your problem than theirs. And that is never fun. You, you hit a couple good points that I, I just want to bold. And that's uh, mostly because uh, I actually wrote an article about this when a friend was just like a friend called me crying because her client was just like she was just frustrated to no end. Uh, so I ended up like writing her some advice uh, over over I am. And uh, it turned out to be relatively good advice. But um, like the first step, step number one, no matter what. Uh, and that's just to take a little bit of time. And I, I really want to, uh, that, that's just so important because anytime you get burned or you get upset, it's very easy to go for the nuclear option. Like so many people, like any comments on the uh, clients from house stories immediately, they're just like, Oh, murder him. Um, <laughs> not even fire. It was just like, yeah, no felony. Let's, let's commit a felony. Um, and of course, internet comments, but like prior to ending any sort of relationship, like just take some time to evaluate this decision. Like, is it a good thing? Um, and if it is a crappy relationship and you're right at the beginning of it, um, it's probably worth your time and sanity to just refund that deposit. Be like, sorry, I wasted your time and silently to yourself and i'm sorry you wasted mine but let's save us both some time and stress and anger and a variety of other unpleasant emotions down the line and let's just end this here yeah. um and it's important to have your reasons to like to reevaluate those as you as you take this time it's it's almost great when a bad client is just awful um because it's so easy to be like yeah you're the worst and i don't need to work with the worst but usually it's it's more insidious than that it's because you guys stop seeing eye to eye or work has slipped or maybe they just can't afford you and and you should know those reasons you don't necessarily like need to throw them in your client's face when you're ending the relationship but if they do question your decision or if they do start to get hostile you you should have those as backup and you should also know the facts if you are going to be letting the client go particularly when it comes to breach of contract as we've said getting sued sucks i have not personally had it happen 
uh, and I don't think anyone on the show has, but that is that is like a business ender, uh, and it's it's never good, and it's not good for anyone typically, except the biggest of the big companies that can do this for uh, typically spiteful reasons. But yeah, just I, I guess what all this advice is coming around to is that you need to be a professional in this situation, no matter how personal it feels. You should be the one who knows why this is happening. You should be prepared. You should hand your client off as well as possible, you know, project resources, up-to-date status, recommendations on standby if they're not so terrible that you don't feel bad recommending them to somebody. Um, basically everything you can do to help the client transition and you should do it all at once. If you're firing a client this way, you don't want to give them a reason to keep coming back to you, you know. Like when I, when I talked about that crappy client experience I had where uh, I was the client and my freelancer had some important passwords... Um, I'm sure they were sick of me too, but like I needed those. I couldn't leave them alone. Uh, and as a result, we, we kept that relationship going for a couple months and nobody was happy for that. And then, yeah, uh, timing is kind of everything with these things. Uh, ideally you would end the relationship sooner than later, but maybe it is a matter of you, you hit an important milestone or you're smart like Jonathan and you, you broke your project into these digestible, uh, bites. Whatever. But uh, sooner is usually better than later. But if it has to be later, try and make it at the end of things. Do it. Be a calm professional. You might be resentful. You might be angry. But just be concise. Don't give any like, and another thing. Like, this isn't you venting. We, there's an entire website, actually, dedicated to uh, venting about clients. That's uh, clientsfromhell.net. <laughs> Check it out. But if you are firing your client, be the calm professional. Because that's what you are. That's why they hired you in the first place. And even if they didn't turn out to be professional, which I assume is the reason you guys aren't working together anymore, doesn't mean you can't be. And you should also listen to your client's explanation. Because maybe there was something on your end. And even if there wasn't, common courtesy and again you're being the better person in this situation and then just make sure you've done everything you can to resolve this situation this is why i talked about all those like preparations um so you need to know what everyone's obligated to do from here on out like any outstanding work any finances you're awaiting typically if you're firing a client and it's because they're a bad client you can kind of say goodbye to any money they owe you there are some decent people out there who will make sure that their debts are filled there are quite a few let's call them lazy people who, uh, if they don't have to pay you, they're not going to. So just keep that in mind. If, if you're if you're saying goodbye to somebody, do not expect them to go out of their way to get you what you're owed. You have to make sure you've done everything you can. Yeah, sorry. That uh, that little addendum to uh, Mr. Stark's good advice uh, really went on there. So I'm going to stop talking for a second. No, it's good. I actually have something going on in about 10 minutes, so I need to start wrapping up. But before we do that, if people want to find out what you're up to, Bryce, where do they go? Uh, I would recommend uh, clientsfromhell.net. Uh, all this talk about value pricing and what to do with crappy clients, it uh, almost makes me want to mention a book I just wrote called Hell to Pay, um, which will help you uh, basically deal with anything financial a freelancer needs to do. Uh, that. So those would be the two big ones. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Bryce Bladen, B-R-Y-C-E-B-L-A-D-O-N, uh, but Clients from Hell is the big one. All right, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Uh, Philip, do you want to start us off with picks? I've got three picks this week. My first pick is being on time. <laughs> My second pick is, uh, I don't know if this has been mentioned before, but, uh, they, they make these little uh, pressure cookers that you can put on a countertop and plug into the wall. And they are unbelievable. I'm talking stuff like, uh, cooking a potato in 10 minutes. It's sort of kind of revolutionizing. It's, it's slow motion revolutionizing how I, uh, cook. So. Countertop pressure cookers. And then my other pick is a, an alternative to cloud app 
which I've become increasingly frustrated with because it seems to have some issues on um, the latest version of OS X, uh, not holding on to settings for some reason. So I found another one called DropShare. DropShare is different from Cloud App. And by the way, these are apps that let you like drag a file onto your onto a little icon on your uh, menu bar at the top and share a file, share a movie. Uh, you can even drag in text or mark down and it will share a nicely formatted version of, of that content. Uh, so DropShare is the one I found. It's different because you just pay for the app and you don't pay a monthly subscription, which is nice. And it just hooks up to an S3, Amazon S3 bucket or uh, a couple other different uh, file sharing services. So uh, those are my picks for this week. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? Uh, my first is a talk that Mike Montero gave at the Interaction Design Association. It was the keynote talk. If you don't know who Mike Montero is, he's the author of Design is a Job and You're My Favorite Client. And he's a, uh, a very, he's sort of a lightning rod type character, very punk rock mentality. And he runs a design firm called Mule Design. And he just has the best advice for designers that I could possibly imagine anyone ever giving. So if you're a designer in particular, but also in general, if you're doing creative work, you should check out Mike Montero's keynote at the Interaction Design Association. It's a great, hilarious, fun talk uh, with tons of great advice. Uh, is that, is really that sp- the F you pay me talk? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been picked on this show several times. It's great. Oh, it's so good. Uh, actually, you know what? It might, there's a, it, that might just be one slide in this one. This one is fairly new. I think it's only about oh, okay. six or eight months old. I'm sure there's some overlap, but uh, it, I think the crux of the talks is thir- 13 things not to do in a client meeting. Uh, it's so great. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's that. And uh, on the on a similar topic, there is to, to this week's show, there's a website called 27B slash six, I think it's called. And it's... Uh, it's written by this incredibly hilarious guy who basically trolls bad clients over email uh, and not just clients, but other people as well. When he gets random email from people with ridiculous requests, he just forces them into this mile long thread of insanity and it is laugh out loud hilarious. So you can check that out in the show notes. All right. I've got a few picks. Uh, the first one is, so I'm going to be on the code newbie podcast coming up in a couple of weeks and I've had this book that I've kind of been outlining in my head and on paper in a few places and on my computer and stuff a couple of times that would be perfect for that audience. And so I've been wanting to outline it and get it out. And uh, I ran across a video by Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income where he outlines how he gets a first draft super duper fast. And it was really good. So I'm going to pick that. Uh, Of course, I watched it last Friday, and then my wife's been sick all weekend, so I have been spending my book writing time driving kids around and doing dad stuff. So I'm hoping to get to that today or tomorrow, but uh, anyway, really like it. And then I just want to do a quick shout-out. Freelance Remote Conf is coming up pretty fast, so go check that out. I'm also going to be in Amsterdam the week of the 17th. I'm going to fly out on the 15th, so I'll be there the 16th, 17th, and 18th, and I'm flying back on the 19th. So if you are in Europe in Amsterdam. I am perfectly happy to have dinner with you on, it's going to be Wednesday night, the 17th. I haven't figured out the place and time, so you're probably going to want to follow me on Twitter so you know 
where that's going to be. That's at CMAXW. Or if you're on the email list to get the episodes for this show or any of the other shows, then you'll, I'm going to send an email out when I know exactly where I'm going to be. And yeah, I just figure a bunch of folks can get together and we can all hang out and talk about the shows and talk about programming, talk about freelancing and whatever else. So anyway, uh, going to call that out. And then finally, Ruby Remote Conf and iOS Remote Conf are the next two conferences I have coming up. The one after that is React Remote Conf. I know that some people are interested in that. So if you're a programmer in those areas, then go check those out as well. You can see the full list at allremoteconfs.com. And uh, yeah, um, Bryce, what are your picks? Well, I probably pimped my site and book a knife uh, enough, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to go in a slightly less narcissistic direction. Since we talked so much about value pricing, David McRaney, the uh, journalist who runs You Are Not So Smart, uh, it's a great blog. One article in particular uh, about value anchoring, the misconception you rationally analyze all factors before making a choice or determining value. The truth, your first perception lingers in your mind, affecting later perceptions and decisions. That's anchoring, and he goes in to explain it in probably one of the most comprehensive ways I've ever seen. So you can check out that link in uh, all those areas uh, Chuck just listed. Another good one is, uh, I always think I get this guy's name wrong, but uh, Dan Arelli, he gives a great TED Talk about a very similar topic, value anchoring, and uh, it's about a survey of 100 MIT students and how... They reacted to various pricing options. And uh, the third one I'm going to give uh, was both uh, the the angel and uh, the devil on my shoulder on this one. It's uh, Soylent. Uh, if you guys know what Soylent is, it's a little food replacement thing. Um, I was running late this morning because uh, my apartment has a lot of construction going on. My apartment's also my office right now. So uh, long story short, running really late. I uh, just threw that together as a quick meal. Fantastic. And then I'm almost certain the postman uh, interrupted this episode to uh, deliver more. So <laughs> you guys are getting my recommendation and also my ire today. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thanks again for coming, Bryce. It was it was fun to talk. Some of those stories were just classic. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.